There is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. It is always a special privilege for us to be invited to do Calvary chapels, and we're just amazed at how this movement continues to burgeon. Lars and I were in Hungary several years ago, and found that there was a Calvary Chapel in the little town where we were there. So I realized that there are hundreds, and this is one of them. My topic is, I think you already know, abiding in Christ. I've chosen as my title. I wasn't sure whether there was going to be an overall title or not. But my father is the gardener. I love to think about the message that Jesus gave to his disciples in John 15. And that's what he said, my father is the gardener. And I can say the same thing, my heavenly father is the gardener. So let's just read from John 15, verses one to four. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off Every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. A.W. Tozer said this, The Bible is more than a volume of hitherto unknown facts about God, man, and the universe. It is a book of exhortation based upon those facts. By far the greater portion of the book is devoted to an urgent effort to persuade people to alter their ways and bring their lives into harmony with the will of God as set forth in its pages. And it certainly is my prayer during this weekend that in some way each one of us will alter our ways. We're none of us prize packages as an old lady that was a dear friend of mine. She, would, she died in her 90s. She lived in, on Cape Cod, Massachusetts. She was a single woman. She had never been married, and she had a head full of wisdom. And I can remember a number of the things that she taught me, and one of them was she used to, she used to call me Betty, and she said, Betty, dear, we're none of us prize packages. Look for the essentials and skip the rest. <laughs> well... We all need to be greatly altered and improved. And remember that this Bible that you have in your hands is devoted primarily to an urgent effort to persuade people to alter their ways. Now, I know that you love coming to a hotel and getting away from home and leaving your husband with all that stuff to do 
And it's just so much fun to get in these hotel rooms until 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning and tell everybody how awful you feel about everything. And you feel worse the next day when you get up. But anyway, it's a great change, isn't it? And it is fun, and that's wonderful, but I do hope that there will be some very serious thinking and praying about how each one of us needs to alter our ways. In 1800, a baby was born in Italy, and when he was 33 years old, he entered the public ministry. His name was Ugo Bassi, U-G-O-B-A-S-S-I. And he had no great originality or style, but the effect of his ministry, of his preaching, was immense. In fact, so much so that people actually threw down their garments for him to walk over. And in Rome, during a certain period of his life, he had the responsibility of speaking in, in a hospital to the, pa the patients that were there. And apparently the uh, hospital was arranged so that there were five long chambers of sick people surrounding, like the hub of a wheel, the pulpit where he stood. And so each, each Sunday he would have the very difficult task and the very wonderful task of speaking to suffering people. And it is said that his voice was wondrously tender as he read the words from John 15, 1 to 4. And a number of years ago, I had learned four lines of poetry, the source of which I did not know. These were the words, measure thy life by loss and not by gain, not by the wine drunk, but by the wine poured forth. For love's strength standeth in love's sacrifice, and he that suffereth most hath most to give. I knew that for years, and I kept wondering who wrote those words. I also learned that the last two lines, he that suffereth most hath most to give, are engraved on the war memorial in Edinburgh, Scotland. But it wasn't until just a few years ago when my aunt gave me a whole bunch of old family papers, and I come from long lines of people who saved things that were very well worth saving. I have some letters that are dated in the 1700s from my ancestors. And my aunt was, she's the last of my father's generation, and so she was very kindly distributing some of the treasures that she had. And to my utter delight and joy, I discovered a little booklet which I have with me tonight, and that is where those four lines came from. It was Ugo Bassi that spoke these tender and wonderful words there in the hospital. And there was a woman who apparently was there, an English woman, who listened and must have taken copious notes, almost verbatim, of everything that he said. And then she put them into the form of a poem and so as I read the poem, remember that he did not speak it in poetry, but this woman put it into poetry, but this was Ugo Bassi's message. I wish we could read the whole thing. We don't have time for that. But this is what 
it says in the first part of the, of the poem, let us consider now this life of the vine, whereof we are partakers. We shall see it is, its way is not of pleasure, nor of ease. It groweth not like the wild trailing weeds, whither it willeth, flowering here and there, or lifting up proud blossoms to the sun, kissed by the butterflies and glad for life and glorious in their beautiful array. The flower of the vine is but a little thing, the least part of its life. You scarce could tell if it ever had a flower. I don't know if any of you are uh, vintners yourselves and know exactly how grapes are, are cultivated. I know very little about it, but I learned here that the flower is a, but a little thing. You scarce could tell it ever had a flower. The fruit begins almost before the flower has had its day, and as it grows, it is not free to heaven, but tied to a stake. Lars and I were in Spain just at the winter season when all the vineyards looked like absolutely nothing. We drove through miles and miles and before it dawned on me that what we were looking at was vineyards, but they were just little sticks sticking out of the ground, maybe six or eight or ten inches high, nothing more. We realized that this is the silent time, the hidden time, when the vines have been cut drastically and ruthlessly back in order to produce good grapes for wine. So it is tied to a stake, and if its arms stretch out, it is but crosswise, also forced and bound. And so it draws out of the hard hillside, fixed in its own place, its own food of life. So for you note-takers, and I do like to see people with notebooks and pens, and it's rather unusual these days, so I see that a lot of you have them, I will try to help you to figure out where in the world this lady is going by giving you points one, two, and three under each heading. So of course the title for, the overall title is My Father is the Gardener, or Abiding in the Vine or in Christ. This Evening's talk is entitled Pruning, and point one, who does the pruning? It is a faithful father. And I think of my earthly father. He was a wonderful man, tall, thin, very shy, and he only had one eye. And we children felt that we were particularly blessed and distinguished among our friends because we could bring them into the house and get Daddy to take his glass eye out. <laughs> and you can be sure that we children many, many times learned why or heard the story of why my father had one eye. It was a matter of disobedience when he was a child. And believe you me, we heard that story again and again. We were six children, I'm number two of six, and my father had been forbidden throughout his childhood to have firecrackers because they're dangerous. And so when he was 12 years old, he decided to sneak out of the house at five o'clock in the morning, and he set off some dynamite caps. And so a piece of copper went into his left eye, and the eye had to be removed. And so we heard that story good many times. But I think it's part of what made my father such a simple, humble man. He was very greatly loved and revered in his day. He was the editor of the only non-Christian, non, 
denominational magazine in the country at that time. And he was, in a way, shy. Um, in fact, he told us that he was quite sure that no woman would ever have him since he was one-eyed. He married a very beautiful woman, my mother, and he loved her desperately and wonderfully and showed it. But he was very careful to discipline his children. He was a faithful father, and a father who does not discipline his children is not a faithful father, according to scripture. I'm sure that we have a good many gardeners here. I'm certainly not one of them. Uh, my attempts at gardening have been very feeble and generally come to nothing. Fortunately, I have a husband who knows considerably more about it than I do, but we really don't have much time for gardening. But you who are gardeners know perfectly well why you prune. You have to prune because you want beautiful flowers or beautiful fruit trees or beautiful vines. And that is exactly why God has to prune you and me. He wants us to grow up and be fruit bearers. And so there is the painful pruning process. Bassey's poem goes on. Till the fair shoots begin to wind, to wind and wave in the blue air and feel how sweet it is. But so they leave it not. The husbandman comes early with the pruning hooks and shears and strips it bare of all its innocent pride and wandering garlands and cuts deep and sure, unsparing for its tenderness and joy. And in its loss and pain, it wasteth not, but yields itself with unabated life, more perfect under the despoiling hand. The bleeding limbs are hardened into wood. The thinned out bunches ripen into fruit, more full and precious to the purple prime. But we're not for that ruthless and seemingly destructive pruning, there wouldn't be the, brand, the bunches ripening into fruit and the full and precious purple prime of the grapes. These beautiful shoots have to be pruned and the shears strip them bare. Now when you and I, in our Christian life, find ourselves thwarted and unable to do what we thought God wanted us to do. What's happened? Don't forget, your father is the gardener. He knows a whole lot better than you and I know. What will bring forth the best Christian fruit in each one of us? And so every now and then he prunes us. He thwarts our purposes. Undoubtedly, some of you have spent a great deal of time and energy and perhaps shed many tears and worked yourself to the bone over something that you believed God wanted you to do. And to your utter bewilderment, it has come to nothing. And you wonder why. I get piles and piles of letters from people who listen to my radio broadcast. And so often the question is, why? Did God let this happen? Or we're trying to figure out what God is up to. 
Now, just exactly what is it that God is up to? We, really, we already know, don't we? We don't need to figure it out. We don't need to scratch our heads and stew and, and worry because he has told us that he aims at fruit. There are many other metaphors, and I understand you have, in previous years, you've, been, you've talked about the potter, you've talked about the shepherd, and there are many different metaphors, aren't there, in Scripture? But God's purpose is clear. It's crystal clear. He wants to shape you and me into the image of his Son. And that's why we need to be greatly helped and the urgent effort to persuade people to alter their ways is what the Bible is about. And in its loss and pain, it wasteth not. God is not wasting your time by seemingly letting something come to nothing. God knows what he's doing every minute of every hour of every day in your, your life and in mine. And I could tell you some stories about the ways in which God has thwarted what I thought were my godly purposes in my missionary work. And many other times, of course, since then. Some of you feel confined. You just are not allowed to do the things that other people are allowed to do. I haven't seen anybody that's handicapped in this room, but undoubtedly there are some people. I just haven't happened to see you. Well, you're the sort of people that all of us can see are tightly bound in some way or other. The rest of us, we may be or we may not be, but the rest of the world doesn't necessarily know about it. I think I, I should th think, I could guess, that that what may be one of the more painful, or maybe it's one of the less painful aspects of being handicapped, just the fact that it's visible to people, that people, people can look at you and know that there's something difficult that you are coping with. Very likely, the things that only you know about are the more, much more difficult. But what is it for? It's never for nothing. God knows exactly what he's doing. And so we are thwarted, we are confined, and we are restrained. Now, how, are you, how many of you are the mothers of children, let's say, under four? Looks like hundreds. <laughs> well, you jolly well better thwart and confine and restrain that child. <laughs> Otherwise, there's going to be all sorts of chaos and sorrow and suffering and out of control in your life and in the life of your poor child if he's not confined and restrained. And my mother said that a baby begins to understand who's in charge within the first two or three days of his life. And she really did believe that the touch of the mother's hand on the baby's back and the sound of her voice, a calm, quiet, never screaming voice, gives that baby some inklings that that baby can absorb. And you, to you young mothers especially, I want to say, your children are always way ahead of you in understanding. <laughs> You hear young parents say, oh, well, he's too young. You know, I can't discipline him until he's three or four years old so I can explain it to him. 
well, the explanation is going to fall on deaf ears anyway. So just remember that he needs to be restrained. And it is pruning. That's what you're doing. You are pruning your little child. So don't be surprised that our Heavenly Father, who is far wiser than you and I are, must prune us. I'd like you to stop and think right now, silently, before God. In what way do I need to be pruned, Lord? Have I been upset with you, Lord, because you have been pruning me? I'm beginning to see now that this is what you were doing. And I was not accepting it with grace and with humility. Think about it. The little child must be confined and restrained. And when you are thwarted or confined or restrained, do you turn at once to your Heavenly Father? Your Father is the gardener. He is a faithful Father. He is a well... I was going to say well-trained. Nobody has to train God, do they? (laughs) But he is a perfectly faithful Father, and he is a perfectly wise Father. So he is a perfectly wise gardener. Are you offended? It really scares me when I get letters from people that tell me they're angry at God. I've had an amazing number of letters with people saying exactly that. I'm really angry at God, and I tremble for them. Because if you're angry at God, there is no other refuge, is there? There is no other refuge in heaven or earth or hell. And so what you're doing is just cutting yourself off from that loving Father. He is not cutting you off. He may be pruning you in all kinds of ways, but he's never going to get cut you off and be so angry that he's just going to throw you away on the, hit, on the pile. So if you are offended, remember that your Heavenly Father has your very best interests at mind, just as the gardener has the very best interest of what kind of a crop he is looking for. You and I, just like little children, have to learn to trust our father. A child has to learn to trust his mother and father. If he cannot trust them, they're in trouble, that child. That child is in trouble. I had a friend that I worked with in Ecuador when I was a missionary, And she told me that her mother was one of those people who who could never be trusted because she would change her mind. She would promise the children that she was going to take them on an outing. They lived in London, and she said she would herd us all down to the bus station, and when the bus was in sight, she would say, we're going home. And my mother used to say that she felt that one of the most wicked things that a parent can do to a child is to make a promise and then break it. I was talking with one of my brothers just a few months ago. We were trying to remember if either one of our parents had ever once broken a promise. We couldn't think of time. They were extremely strict with themselves about that. And that's a godly characteristic, isn't it? Because God doesn't break his promises. And so he's asking you and me, do you know who it is that's pruning you? Are you willing 
to be cut and tied and confined and restrained, remember that he is a faithful father. Now, why does he do it? Of course, we can't completely separate these three things because they overlap so much. But I have a testimony here from a man named Harry Beck. It's a beautiful testimony to me of a man who didn't have any question about why God was doing this to him. You know, people say, why is God doing this to me? One day when I was about to leave my dentist's office, I said to him, what are you going to do to me next? And he said, not to, for. Well, that's exactly the way we should look at God. What God does to us is always for us. A girl came up to me one time and she said, Mrs. Elliot, can I ask you a question? And I said, sure. Well, I mean, like, um, you know, uh, I don't know, maybe this is kind of a dumb question, but, um, well, do you really mind if I, may, if I ask you a question? I said, no, I don't mind at all. Go ahead. Well, it kind of scares me when I hear you give your testimony. And I say, well, what's scary about it? Well, um, you know, I mean, um, what if God did to me what he did to you? <laughs> I said, and what did God do to me? Well, I don't know, like, you know, well, it took all the way, it took away all those husbands and all that stuff. And some of you don't know that husband number three is the one that's with me tonight. As far as I know, he's still here. And, <laughs> The other two, the Lord did take. But I had to say the same thing to that dear girl. She was just scared to death of what might happen to her in the future, how awful it would be if it was as bad as what God had done to Elizabeth Elliot. And of course, I tried to, con to comfort her by saying, God is never going to do anything to you that isn't for you, and he's never done anything to me that isn't for me. But his ways are mysterious, aren't they? And there is no fathoming the depth of the wisdom, the knowledge of God in his choices for us. Now, let me read to you this testimony from Harry Beck. Harry was diagnosed with what is called Lou Gehrig's disease, a myotrophic lateral sclerosis. It's progressive and incurable, deteriorating the motor nerves in the body, never affecting the brain. All muscles eventually are paralyzed. Death comes as it invades the muscles which control breathing. By this time, his arms, hands, and swallowing and chewing and speech muscles were greatly affected. And so when he wanted to say something, his wife would stand within six inches of his face and hold onto his head, and he would make noises that she could still interpret because as he was gradually going downhill, she was remembering this language that he was almost having to invent. And so she, 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 tell, she told me this. During Sunday morning worship at our church on New Year's Eve, the question was asked, what did you trust the Lord for in 1995, and what will you be trusting him for in the new year? On our way home, I said to Harry, I sensed that if you could talk, you would like to have answered those questions. Harry said, 
Yes. In fact, this morning, before we went to church, I was thinking to myself that this has been the best year of my life. And that afternoon, he asked me to sit and take down his thoughts as he spoke very, very slowly, one word at a time. That's what his wife, Madera, said. Now, this is his testimony, and of course, I will read it in a normal tone of voice. As we count down the final hours of 1995, I can truly say that this has been the best year of my life. When I was diagnosed in November of 94, as we walked out of Dr. Ray's office, I told my wife that we had been learning to live one day at a time, and that is the way we are going to live this. Then, as we were in the car on our way home, Madera asked me what I was feeling on the inside, and I said, most people will think I'm crazy, and you're going to think I'm crazy too, but I feel like I'm on a journey. I don't know where I'm going, but I'm so excited. I know that this was the Holy Spirit speaking to me and through me. Three days after the diagnosis, I asked Bill Crawford to go to Southern Bell and tell my co-workers of the diagnosis. I asked him to be sure to tell them two things. Number one, I know this is for my good. I just want God to be glorified. Number two, this is not a curse. This is a blessing. Again, this was the Holy Spirit speaking not only through me, but to me. At that time, I had no idea of the blessings he had in store for me. As I look back over 1995 and the last two months of 94, I would never have dreamed that God would have blessed me and my family the way he has through family members, friends, the body of believers here at church, and the people I don't even know. God has, in love, placed me in a position to be totally dependent on him. He has taught me so much this year. I have learned to love and to be loved. I've learned patience, like giving my needs to him and trusting his timing and his methods. Bottom line, I have learned to trust him, try him, and prove him. Two of my greatest blessings are the wife and daughter God gave me for such a time. I am totally dependent on them for my daily physical needs. In my eyes, I am not worthy of all God's blessings, but I am but I am must think I am. So he's using I am as God's name. I am must think I am because he just keeps on blessing me. I look forward to 1996 with great anticipation. I am trusting in the Lord that it is going to be even better than this last year. Harry died in July of 1996. But I've had contact several times with his dear wife, Madeira, since then. And she told me that some of her, his co-workers at Southern Bell had, had their lives changed by the testimony of Harry Beck. Why does the father who is the gardener prune his garden? Why did he have to do that for Harry Beck? Well, we know some of the answer now, don't we? because of the testimony that he had for all those men and for the blessings that he taught his dear wife, Madeira, and she's a gem. She's one of those people that shine when you see her. You have no idea what God has up his sleeve for you 
in order to change you into the image of Christ, in order to make you and me fruit bearers, which we could not be without his seemingly cruel and ruthless pruning at times. The vine is tied to the stake so that it will be far more fruitful than it could possibly be any other way. And talk about being tied to a stake. Harry was totally paralyzed. And the, when the time came, when the doctor said, within the next 24 hours, you will not be able to swallow. Do you want us to feed you with a tube? And he said, no. He said, my heavenly father knows when it's time for me to go. And of course he had to spell, in those days, he was spelling it all out on a, on a board that he had. He could point with his eyes to the letters. And he said, when that time has come, it's time for me to go home. And so he starved to death. Well, stripped, tied to a stake, and the more it grows, the more tightly bound. And Jesus has been teaching his disciples in that beautiful passage that we just read, from John 15. I don't know why I took my marker out. Verse 3, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. And the word is abide, a word that we don't very often use in ordinary modern English. And when I was a child, I knew this passage by heart, and it says, uses the word abide over and over and over again, and I just never did know what that meant. And when I finally became a high school student, curious enough to want to find out what in the world does it mean, I still couldn't find the answer very easily. And now in the, this particular translation that I'm reading, it, the word is remain, abide. It simply means stay put. Just stay there where God put you. Remain in me. Stay in me. Stay put in me. Don't go wandering off as the vine wants to do, putting its own little tentacles off where it wants to go. And again, they have to be chopped off. Not, we're not to go off on our own, you and I. Where does the Lord want us to go? We used to sing a song when I was in college, missionary song, where he leads me, I will follow. And I never forgot a missionary who came and spoke in chapel, and she said, if you sing where he leads me, I will follow. You jolly well be prepared, better be prepared to sing what he feeds me, I will swallow. <laughs> and when I lived in the jungle with some primitive Indians, there were some times that I had to remember those words, what he feeds me, I will swallow. And then, in this beautiful poem, still the more it grows, the straight, the straightlier bound are all its branches. And then comes the vintage, for the days are ripe, and surely now in its perfected bloom it may rejoice a little in its crown, though it bend low beneath the weight of it, the weight of all the grapes. The hands are ready to tear down the treasures of the grapes. The feet are there to tread them in the wine press. And I'm sure most of you know that in Italy, wine is made by people treading on, with their bare feet on the grapes in the wine press. Uh, 
until the blood-red rivers of the wine run over and the land is full of joy. But the vine standeth stripped and desolate, having given all. We're down now to number three. The branch must remain in the vine. What a strange ruination it seems that the vine is totally stripped, having given all, and now its own dark time has come. It is cut back to the very stem, despoiled, disfigured, left a leafless stalk, alone through all the dark days that shall come. And I love this part. Not bitter for the torment undergone, not barren for the fullness yielded up. So when you ask that question, why is God doing this to me? Or why is God not, for example, giving me a husband? Or why is God not giving me a baby? Or not giving me another baby? Or not supplying all our needs? Well, when we think that God is not supplying all our needs, we better go back to that verse in Philippians 4 that says, My God shall supply almost all of your needs. Is that what it says? It says, My God shall supply all your needs. So if you haven't got it, you don't need it. I heard five or six people. If you ain't got it, you don't need it. Not barren for the torment undergone. Not, not bitter for the torment undergone. Not barren for the fullness yielded up. I had a letter just last week from a girl who said, I've just walked away from God. I thought the poor, desperate, lonely, desolate girl. Where can she turn? She's walked away from God because she's angry. The branch must remain in the vine. Stay put. Your life comes from the vine. Once the branch is cut off, there is no life-giving flow into that branch. It's good for nothing but to be thrown onto the ash heap and burned. Is your desire to sin stronger than your desire to know God? Sometimes it comes to that, doesn't it? And we quite deliberately disobey. You know that beautiful hymn, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, the next three words you know by heart, whatever my lot. What is our lot? It simply means that which God has given to us, that which is assigned to us. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And some of you probably know that I'm very big on hymns. And one of the reasons is because they have meant so much in my life. And that has been one of the hymns that I have loved because it came out of deep, deep suffering. Maybe some of you know the story of it. We haven't got time to tell that story tonight. But it came out of deep suffering, and the man was able to say, 
Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. And one of my life verses is Psalm 16, verse 5. Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup and have made my lot secure. Isn't that wonderful? My lot is absolutely secure. What God has assigned me, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. Are we contented with the portion and the cup that God has sent us? The vines can't literally disobey, but you and I can, can't we? God didn't create the vines and the trees and the oceans and the winds and the clams and the giraffes and the lobsters to be able to disobey him. The clams and the lobsters and the giraffes do exactly what clams and lobsters and giraffes were made to do. And the tides rise when the tides are supposed to rise and the winds blow when God tells the winds to blow. But he's given to you and me this incredible gift of the freedom of the will. And that will has to be brought under his control. But it's you that has to submit it. God is not going to invade your life with such tenderness and such courtesy. He says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. But he's not going to barge in. So, you and I are capable of disobedience. If we could choose for ourselves where we would find the fullness of the divine presence, would we choose to do something that would displease God? Certainly not. It is to be found, that divine presence will be found where we find from this passage it will be found, and that is in loving obedience. We will find the fullness of the divine presence in loving obedience. Abide in the vine. Stay there. Don't leave. Don't defy God. Don't walk away from him but be willing to be tied and pruned and the shears have got to come. We may be stripped as Harry Beck was. Very unlikely that many of us will be stripped in that particular way, but God has his ways of stripping us, doesn't he? And as I look back over my more than seven decades now, I can see the progressive stripping process that has had to go on over and over and over again in my life. Am I mad? Am I angry about it? I can only say, thank you, Lord, that you tied me, that you cut the branches back, that you were faithful. My father is the gardener, and my father loves me with an everlasting love, and so does yours. He's the same father, isn't he? You are loved with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says. And underneath are the everlasting arms. But God has got to prune us. 
So number one was who does the pruning? Remember, it's a faithful father. Number two, why does he do it? In order that we may be fruitful. And number three, the branch must remain in the vine. And you and I are given the freedom to disobey. Do you want to do that? Or do you want to remain in the vine? God bless you. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms.